The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Go to the Word of God. Take your Bibles, please, and go to the book of uh, Acts. Acts in chapter 13, and we're going to read the last part of this chapter and uh, Paul's conclusion to his sermon, the events that unfolded beyond that. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 38. Verse 38. Just as you're finding your place in there, just to kind of give you a lead into the story and where it ends up, we've seen in chapter 13 in verses 1 and 2 that Barnabas and Saul were set apart by the Spirit of God to go and do the work of God's uh, gospel spreading to that area. In verses 3 to 12, they preached the gospel on Cyprus in the synagogues and to Sergius Paulus, the proconsul who believes in the word of the Lord. He believes the gospel and is saved. And they deal also with Elymas, as you'll remember, in the first opposition to the gospel uh, witness there. In verses 13 to 16, Paul and Barnabas, without John Mark, travel across the sea and over the Taurus Mountains to preach the gospel in Pisidian Antioch. And again, they enter the synagogue, and Luke provides for us a summary record of Paul's sermon in response to their call for a word of exhortation. And what a word they got. In verses 16 to 25, Paul gives a summary of Israel's history, particularly God's gracious dealings with Israel. He chose the fathers. He made Israel great. He led them out. He destroyed their enemies and distributed the inheritance to them. He gave and removed Saul. He raised up David as king. And the climax of it all is he brought Jesus, the Savior, as he had promised. And then in verses 26 to 37, Paul proclaims this message of salvation. He described Jesus' crucifixion, his burial and resurrection, and how God raised Jesus to the essence of the indestructible, glorified life. He inherited the holy and sure blessings of David's eternal covenant. All of this was according to what was written and promised about him. And that brings us to verse 38. Let's read together. And Paul is speaking. He says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you, 
since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited devout women of high standing, and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 38 to 52, we see Paul's concluding his sermon, his word of exhortation, and the response that it gained from both Jews and Gentiles. Luke's account of Paul's words and their response, the people's response, written under the Spirit's inspiration, serve to call us to respond, to know the power of the gospel to beware of rejecting the gospel, and to believe the message of the gospel. Every message you hear calls for a response, whether positive or negative, maybe neutral. And you might think, well, you know, I can just ignore that message. Well, even ignoring the message is still a response to it. And this message, as it's preached to these people, and as we read it in the scriptures, calls for a response from us. But before we consider that response... I want us to understand the problem that God in His grace inspired this text to give us the solution for. All of mankind, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, child, we all deal with one great problem above all else. We are all guilty. We have all sinned against God. Our conscience testifies to us of our sin. Guilt plages Plague, sorry, our conscience. Guilt is our own internal realization and shame and embarrassment at having sinned against God. We've broken His law. We've failed to meet His holy standard. We've crossed His boundaries in thought and word and action. And guilt is also the debt that we owe to God for that sin. The payment for our sin and the cost to remove guilt is the same. Death. Romans 6.23, the well-known verse that we use in the gospel, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 3.19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. God knows that we are guilty. We cannot escape or hide from God. In Genesis 44 and verse 16, Joseph's brothers recognized that God had found them out. God knew the guilt of their sin against Joseph. We all know deep down inside that we are guilty before God. John 8, verses 3 to 11, Jesus is there with the crowd. They brought the woman taken in adultery, and they've thrown her down in the midst of this big circle of people, and they're all standing around cheering and waiting for what Jesus is going to say. The Pharisees are trying to trip him up. And Jesus speaks, and he tells the crowd that such as she should be stoned. And then he adds this comment, but let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. 
amazing moment. And you can see all these self-righteous Jews with their rocks and their stones and their... And you can almost hear the hush as the crowd just gets completely quiet. And everybody stands there and the dust begins to settle and the rocks begin to drop. And a shuffle of feet as first one, then another begins to walk away. Why is that? Because every one of us knows deep down in our own hearts that guilt that we carry for the sin that we commit. Guilt is our great problem. Guilt has a terrible effect on us. King David, after he had committed adultery and murder and deception around the whole Bathsheba incident, describes the effects of guilt in Psalm 32 and verse 3. He says, while he kept silent, meaning while he kept his voice from repenting before God, his bones wasted away. His guilty conscience brought a corrosive, rotting effect on his soul that affected every part of his life. Guilt creates an anguish in the human heart. We look at Judas and we see somebody who we shy away from. In that one moment as he goes back into the temple with the money and there's an anguish in his heart, he realizes what he has done and he throws the money down into the middle of temple courts. You can see that anguish in there. Guilt is racking him. But sadly, it never becomes repentance. It's a guilt unto death, and Judas goes out and takes his own life. Guilt defiles our lives. In Isaiah 59 and verse 3, the Bible says, Our hands are defiled with blood, our fingers with iniquity, our lips speak lies, our tongues are full of wickedness. Guilt defiles our whole lives. And guilt without repentance, as 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us, leads only to death. And you know, our world spends billions of dollars trying to free itself from guilt. We're all trying desperately to to deaden the voice of guilt. Our conscience is unrelenting in testifying against us that we have sinned against God. And so we try and quieten it and deaden it. We try to medicate it out of existence with alcohol and drugs. But then we only sober up to discover it's worse than before. We try to cover up our guilt with extravagant self-pampering, buying ourselves this and that and the other thing. We'll get over this guilt. Maybe we just need a holiday. Maybe we need a new car. Maybe we need something else to divert our attention away from that guilt. But inevitably, it comes back. We try to push our guilt onto someone else. The prevailing philosophy and psychology of our day tells us it's not your fault It's someone else's fault. It's always someone else's fault. But at the end of the day, when the lights go out at night and we lie on our bed, the guilt we've spent time and money trying to silence and remove is still there. cannot escape it. Guilt is like that hand-forged chain. You remember the story of uh, Scrooge and Jacob Marley? And Scrooge is lying in bed and he sees that vision of Jacob Marley come in the door and Jacob Marley's got all these chains wrapped around him and he's talking about the, 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 the bad things he's done. The theology of that is obviously a little bit off. But you know what? Just that image in his mind of Jacob Marley with all those chains wrapped around him and guilt is like that hand-forged chain. 
Every sin we commit forges yet another link in that chain, and the weight of it gets heavier and heavier. We cannot remove it. We cannot undo it. We cannot go back. It's fastened there by God, and we feel like the disciples in Matthew 19, verses 25 and 26, who asked Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus' answer is, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And brothers and sisters, the wonderful, glorious gospel truth of both Old and New Testaments is that God has provided the means of grace whereby guilty people may be forgiven for guilt-causing sin and free from guilt and declared righteous by God. I'm not foolish enough to believe that sitting in this room, coming to church on Sunday morning, that every single person in this room truly knows the Lord Jesus as Savior. And so I ask this question of you. Wouldn't you like to know that forgiveness and freedom? Wouldn't you like to know the joy and the peace of a guilt-free conscience? Wouldn't you like to be able to lay your head in the bed at the end of the night and just gift up your heart to God and thanksgiving and joy before the Lord because your guilt has been removed, your sin has been dealt with, and you have been reconciled to God and there is absolute peace within your heart. We talked about it a few weeks ago. That moment when you discover and you experience peace with God. A peace that you can't even begin to explain or describe. It's just a feeling as deep-seated, more than a feeling, but a feeling anyway of peace with God. The Jews sitting there in the synagogue listening to Paul as he proclaimed forgiveness of sins and being freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. They, of anybody, knew the absolute futility of law-keeping to attempt to remove guilt and cleanse sin. They knew with every repeated offering, killed and bled and burnt and eaten, it would only have to happen again and again and again. Their whole history was a history of repeated offerings. Paul has declared to them that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that Jesus had been scourged and crucified in a horrific, agonizing, bloody death. He declared Christ's burial in a borrowed tomb and God's raising him to life. And now Paul declares in verses 38 and 39, Let it be known to you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man... Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Forgiveness of sins and freedom from the law is part of the salvation that we have in Christ. Paul wants these people to understand, to know the gospel. His words there, let it be known. As, I'm not much of a Greek scholar, but as I understand it, it's basically a command be knowing this. So brothers and sisters, this morning, my first point is this, be knowing this, know this, that God's salvation, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
Know this, that God's salvation proclaimed in the gospel is all the physical and spiritual benefits God graciously gives undeserving humans. We're saved from sin's penalty and power and presence. We're saved from God's wrath against sinners. We're saved from death and hell and grave and the world and the devil. And we're also saved into God's rich blessings. We're saved into adoption into God's family. We're saved to receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. Christian, go through Ephesians chapter 1 and look at all those blessings he lays out. They're all yours. He saved you from guilt and sin and brought you into all those blessings. That's all part of his salvation. We're saved to receive every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're saved and instantly declared righteous in God's sight and so many other blessings besides. So right here in our text, Paul says that forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to us, to Jew and Gentile. Sin, of course, is the root cause of all our guilt. But where sin is forgiven, guilt is removed. And brothers and sisters, friends, let me tell you this morning, there is only one way to remove guilt. You won't do it with alcohol or drugs, and you won't do it with therapy. You'll only do it through the gospel. You'll only do it as God forgives. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is God's voluntary, willing, releasing us from the debt we owe to Him for our sin. We owed God the debt of, of, for all our sin. But God in grace forgives us the debt. But God is not unjust. He is absolutely just and holy and righteous. He cannot allow the debt to go unpaid. So His justice was fully satisfied by Christ's death in our place so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, as Paul says in Romans 3.26. The power of the gospel for salvation includes forgiveness of sins. Listen to what the Bible says. In Colossians 2.13, Paul says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us, all our transgressions. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, the Bible says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In Psalm 32, listen to what David says after he talked about keeping it hidden. How blessed is He whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That was before he talked about the other part, sorry. But listen again. Those of you got a text from me yesterday, how blessed is it, is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Brothers and sisters, we have a blessing beyond anything we can imagine to know that our sin is forgiven. You know what the part of our problem is? We spend so much time reading and thinking about the gospel that in some senses we become so familiar that we just talk about forgiveness like it's just old hat. When was the last time that you went to somebody that you had wronged and sought their forgiveness and you went in that soul 
wrenching, gut-turning anxiety. You knew you had to go and make something right. You knew you had sinned against somebody and you had to set the record right and you had to seek their forgiveness. And there was that tension inside. And that moment you heard the gracious words of the other person, I forgive you. It's all good. There's nothing between us anymore. And you felt that release, that sense of great peace within Brothers and sisters, when we stop and think about how the greatness of our sin and to realize how much God has forgiven us for that sense of release, that sense of joy and peace and just stunned amazement at God ought to be so much more. Beloved, wouldn't you like to know what it means to be forgiven for those who don't know what it is? Wouldn't you like to know that tremendous blessing of peace with God, of peace inside, peace and silence from the unceasing voice of a troubled conscience? You read biography after biography of men and women who have come to know God, and you see the same thing in their biographies, that moment when they trusted Christ for the first time in months Possibly weeks, they slept in peace. Did anybody here young enough to, or old enough still, sorry, that remembers Nikki Cruz? <laughs> Couple of hands, just letting how old we are. The old guys remember Nikki Cruz. Nikki Cruz, for those of you who don't know, was uh, David Wilkerson back in the 1950s, 1955. David Wilkerson went into New York City and started evangelizing the gangs of New York. Uh, there's a movie about it, a very old movie now, uh, called The Cross and the Switchblade. I read Nicky Cruz's story shortly after I came to know Christ as my Savior, and I'll never forget him just talking about he for months, years, he had had a tormented sleep. I think his father was involved in some kind of occult issues in uh, Puerto Rico, and he could never get decent sleep. He had committed at least two murders by the time he was 18 years of age, and he went and he listened to this skinny preacher from the Midwest, staying there with a Bible, telling him the story of Jesus. And he came to know forgiveness of sins. And he said he went home. And for the first time in years, he slept through the night. He knew what it was to have peace in his soul with God. Brother and sister, my friend, if you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, let me ask you, do you have that peace? Do you know the blessing of forgiveness? Well, there's more. But notice it's not all what Paul said to them. In verse 39, he says, But by him, that's by Christ, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The power of the gospel of salvation includes freedom or justification. That word in your Bible where it says freedom, the word, the word is translated in a lot of other places as the word justified. So through Christ, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification is best understood by the phrase declared righteous. It's an instantaneous work of God. The moment we trust in Christ, God declares us right in his sight. Is our works. Christ's death paid the penalty for all our sin. Because of Christ's death, God forgives our sin. Because our sin is forgiven, God no longer holds anything against us. And although Paul makes no mention of it here in in this situation, he talks elsewhere about how God applies or imputes 
Christ's righteousness to us and to our account, and then instantly God declares us to be righteous. And in my mind's eye, when I read that, I think about that, all I see is God in heaven looking over at me and shouting to all the heavenly host, all the demonic host, righteous in my sight. So having been forgiven for sin... Having been declared righteous by God, the law can no longer bring any charge against us. God breaks the chain of guilt and sets us free. In Galatians 2.16, this is what Paul says, But we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. But get this straight in our heads. The problem is not the law of God. God's law or the law of Moses is just and holy and perfect. You read Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119, and what he describes there is the perfectness of the law. The the law defines what holiness should look like. It measures my obedience to God or not. It points me to Christ as my Savior. It leads me like a school teacher to Christ. But the law of Moses cannot make us righteous. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. And so it's a little corny, but here goes. The law of God is like my bathroom weigh scales. No matter how many times I get on and off and back on again and back off and back on again and hoping for a different answer, the answer is always the same. You're getting the point. The weigh scales can only tell me how much I weigh. They're absolutely incapable of making me weigh less. And even when I pick it up and in frustration, bang it on the counter and put it back down and get back on, it still says the same thing. I could write a letter to the manufacturer and say, hey, you know what? My health would be a whole lot better if your weigh scale gave me a different answer. And they'd say, what would be the point of that? And here's the point. The law of God cannot make us holy. It can only explain to us and show us what holiness looks like and how much we have failed and show us where we measure up. And it basically says one thing. You have sinned. You have failed. But, praise God, it is God who can forgive the sin. It's God who can set us free. It's God who can wipe out all the handwriting of ordinances against us. And the law looks and says... There's nothing to be found. And the law has nothing left to say other than, again, to point to the holiness of God. It points us to the beauty of Christ and his his sufferings and his death and so on. The power of the gospel is to the salvation of sinners by God. It's God's forgiveness of sins through Christ. It's God's setting us free from all the law's demands. It's setting us free from guilt of sin. It's God's instant declaration that I am righteous through Christ and only through Christ. That salvation we have only comes through Christ. You can try for an eternity of Sundays to find some other way to save yourself, but you cannot do it outside of Christ. Listen to what the Bible says. In Mark 2, verses 5 to 11, Jesus saw the faith of five men lowering a paralytic through the roof and forgave the paralytic's sins and then healed his paralysis to prove it. 
In Matthew 26 and verse 28, Jesus said, as he instituted the Lord's Supper, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. In Acts 5.31, Peter in his preaching said, He, that's Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior. Why? To grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins and freedom through, through, try again, forgiveness of sins and freedom from guilt is only through Christ. And it's for everyone. Did you notice as you work through that passage over the last three weeks, Paul addresses his congregation in verse number 16. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God. In verse 26, his brothers, sons of Abraham's family and you who fear God. In verse 38, it's literally men and brethren. And then in verse 39, everyone. The gospel is for everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old. Everyone falls under the message of the gospel. Nobody is separated. No longer is there a distinction between Jew and Gentile. All are subject to the power of the gospel message. A Jew who rejects the gospel will go to hell as surely as a Gentile who rejects the gospel. Make no mistake. Beloved, know the power of the gospel message. God's power is available to forgive your sin. No matter what the sin, no matter how dark, how bad, how embarrassing, how depraved, God forgives. God's power is available to set you free from the guilt that has a death grip on your soul. God's power is only found in one place, and that's in Christ. Know this. That to pursue freedom from guilt from any other way is absolutely futile. I'll never forget um, early years preaching. I was um, I'd invited to a hockey night. Uh, we used to, hockey is the Vancouver and Canadians' passion and madness, if you like, and we all play hockey as much as we can. And in my younger, somewhat slimmer days, I used to play hockey on Friday nights. And I got invited this hockey night, and the goal of the hockey night put on by a local church was we play hockey for an hour, and then somebody gives us the gospel for 15 minutes, and we play hockey for another hour. And we think, oh, what would that do? Well, believe it or not, young men were saved, and one of them was saved, joined that local church, and years later became an elder and a preacher all through the ministry of a hockey night. I'll never forget standing up there, and, and I didn't know much about preaching. I just gave the gospel as best I could and as powerfully as I possibly could because I managed to convince one of my workmates to come to the, the hockey night. He loved hockey. He was a great hockey player, and he could beat me at anything he did in hockey. But as, we, as I stood there and preached with all my heart, he sat there on the bench with his head down, and he would not look at me. Someone told me on Monday morning, did you know that Brian went out on Friday night off that hockey night and he got himself absolutely roaring drunk. And I thought, I wonder. The reality of the message of the gospel hit him like a ton of bricks. In a desperate attempt to try and quieten the voice of his conscience, he drank it till he could hear nothing. Brothers and sisters, you can try alcohol, you can try drugs, you can try psychology, you can try whatever you want to set you free from that voice of guilt, but only, only, only Christ can set it free, set you free.
But you know what a great comfort. I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing the gospel as a lot as I can, but I don't want to forget the other side of it too. What a great comfort this is. For us that know God, us that know Christ, what great comfort, what blessing to know that God forgives sin, that God frees us from guilt, that the forgiveness that we have is a complete, unreserved, unrestrained forgiveness. No sin is left unaccounted for. No guilt is left to linger. When God forgives, we are forgiven. When God frees, none has the power to chain us up again. So we sit here this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that forgiveness, be greatly comforted in this. There can never be an accounting mistake in heaven. You are forgiven. God will never bring those sins against you again. So Paul has preached and they've listened like you have. How then did Paul's congregation respond? First of all, we have to beware of rejecting the gospel. Notice the response of the Jews, literally their leaders. Some of the Jews respond this way, but not all of them. A few of them did come out and believe. They responded from a sense of self-righteousness. In verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. The Jews, as we saw this on Wednesday night, looking at this passage in our Bible study, the Jews being God's people received the law and the covenants and the promises. They were the race and the nation to bring Christ into the world. And they were given the privilege of hearing the message first, yet they thrust it aside. They judged themselves unworthy of receiving eternal life. Make no mistake, that was no expression of superhumility. In essence, they considered Paul's message about Jesus, a carpenter's son from Nazareth with a questionable birth story who'd been crucified by the Romans, a highly unlikely account of their much longed for, much expected Messiah. They didn't consider him to be the one in whom they could trust. That would require a touch too much humbling of themselves to admit they'd been wrong about him. They could do better than trust in this, in this Jesus. They would rather trust in their own law-keeping. They would rather trust in their own estimation of who the Messiah is. They trusted in their own judgment, not God's word and God's message. Beloved, beware lest you do the same thing. Watch out. Beware you do not consider trusting Christ as beneath you. Beware that you do not reject the gospel. Instead, waste your life and your happiness pursuing what cannot bring true happiness and peace and joy. Beware that you do not judge the gospel as beneath you. For Christ, again, is the only Savior of the world. There is no other. Secondly, they responded with scoffing. We see that in verse 41. And Paul uses the words of Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5 and says, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. It reminded them and Paul of the words spoken to Jewish leaders by the prophets shortly before the destruction of Israel back in the Old Testament. And those Jews ignored and scoffed and mocked. And what the prophets said, yet judgment came upon them suddenly. Beware, beloved, that you don't mock and scoff and sneer at the words of this gospel message. 
just as Habakkuk's words are as God speaking directly to his people, so also the message of the gospel communicated through the apostles and the witnesses is as God speaking to his people. Scoffing precedes judgment and destruction. Mocking is met suddenly with God's judgment. I don't like scare stories in gospel messages, but I will share this one. Uh, We were working... same time, uh, the other story, uh, there was a young man in our, our company. He was, uh, you remember the, the show Happy Days? You remember the character of Potsy? We called him Potsy. He, he was just kind of a goofy kid. And one day, we all came to work on Monday morning, and there was a story about this in the news about an accident and about somebody who had been killed, and Potsy didn't show up for work. And... We all started going, Where's, where is he? What happened to him? And sure enough, at lunchtime, the foreman called us all together and said, hey, guys, in case you didn't know or you hadn't heard, uh, that guy was the one that was killed on the motorbike. He got on his bike, sober, sound, drove home, wasn't speeding, wasn't breaking law, just driving down the road, and a taxi cab came out of a side street, didn't hit him, didn't see him, hit him full on, and Potsy died on his own on the curb. He had no idea the day he got on that bike to drive home that that was the last day. He had rejected the gospel. Didn't want to know it. Had no idea. The story, I'll tell you, is a friend of mine who was uh, one of my best friends growing up, and his dad was in our church, and he was a police officer. And uh, he told us his story in a youth group, and he said he had, because he was a Christian and a Christian cop, and they all knew it in the police force, he had the job, you can guess what it was, of going and, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, yes, we have some bad news. Can we come inside? And he often got the job of going and denouncing the death uh, through accident or whatever of loved ones because he was a Christian. He would carry a Bible with him. He would go and share. He told us a story one night about a young man who had been in the church for years and he was not a believer and had rejected and rejected and rejected and rejected the gospel. And finally, in desperation, his aunt, who he lived with, kept hammering it away. When are you going to turn your life over to Christ? When are you going to believe the gospel? And finally, in frustration, he looked around and he said, Look, I promise, okay, right before I die, I'll I'll trust in Jesus, okay? Just leave me alone. And that night, Arnie knocked on the door and he said, I'm sorry, but I have really bad news. And you know, police officers will often say something like this to try and assuage the grief of the one hearing the news. He never knew what hit him. And when Arnie shared those words, he had no idea of the devastating effect it would have on that poor little lady to hear that her nephew died in an instant. He never knew what hit him. What's the point? Listen, if you're here and you may have been coming here for years, If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me assure you, just as the doctors at McCulloch House have absolutely no idea the moment of Irene's death, they can only guesstimate. Just as you may think, I've got 50, 60, 40, 20, I've got 10 years left, I've got lots of time. You don't know the moment of your death. And what Paul is saying to these men, look you scoffers, be astounded and perish. Destroyed. 
For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. What he's saying is, listen, you're scoffing right now, but judgment and destruction is coming, surely. Watch out. God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. If we sow rejection of God, if we sow disbelief and pushing away of the gospel, one day it will be too late. These men responded with scoffing and judgment was coming. They responded with contradiction reviling. And they responded in the great risk of God's judgment and perishing. The last point I want to bring up is this, is the other side of the story, the other response. I want you to notice several things in the text. In verse number 42, as Paul is leaving, Paul and Barnabas are leaving the synagogue, those there, it says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. There was a desire planted in them to know more. There was a desire to hear more about Christ. A Christian has no disregard, no rejection of the, of the gospel Someone truly saved wants to hear it over and over and over again. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his glory. Tell me the old, old story of the cross, of where sin was dealt with. We as Christians long to hear that. Let me ask you the most convicting question I can ask you. Is that your desire? Are you sitting here this morning thinking, for goodness sakes, I wish you'd preach on something else. Doesn't he know there's more than just the the Jesus story in the Bible? Yes, he does. But let me tell you, every story in the Bible points to the same thing, bar none. They all point to the cross of Christ. These people desired, they longed to hear more of the gospel. They couldn't wait to come back next Sunday or next Saturday in their case to hear more, to hear about how God was converting men and women to Christ. God did his work in them to change their affections, to change us, to draw us to himself, to incline our hearts to want Christ and the gospel. And here we see the evidence of this happening in these Jews and some Gentiles. They long to hear more of the gospel. Beloved, is there in each of us a longing, a craving, a desire to hear and know more of the gospel? How do we know that there's already a work of grace going on inside of us? Do you long for more of the gospel and more of God's grace? Look what Paul said to him as he's leaving. He urged them to continue in the grace of God. He recognized in their response, in their desire to hear more, to know more, that God's grace was already at work. And so he urges them to continue in that ongoing work of grace in them. Notice secondly in verse 48, they believe the gospel. Notice what Paul says, or Luke writes actually, that as many as had been pointed to eternal life believed. And here we have, hand in hand, two sides of the old argument, sovereignty and free will. God ordained them to eternal life, and they still had to believe. God's sovereignty does not ever remove the responsibility to, re- to believe and repent of sin. They believed. They accepted the message as for them. They received the good news and responded by believing it to be true for them. They knew the gospel. 
They knew that God's creation of mankind for his glory. They knew the man's sin and rebellion against God. They knew of God's just condemnation of all sinners to hell and God's magnificent grace in sending Christ, who lived as truly God and truly man, who healed the sick and raised the dead and cleansed lepers, who suffered and bled and died on a cross for our sin, who was raised by God from death to absolute life, who offers to save from wrath all those who trust in him. They believed it. As my friend sitting down there just often says to me, yes, but do you believe it? Brother and sister, it's possible to come into this church and be under good teaching when I'm away, and hear this Bible taught over and over and over and over and over again, and to know what it says, to be able to memorize it and have it all marked up and highlighted and notated, and to know everything that says in there and not believe it. That's the great danger, isn't it? We know all the facts. We know the theology. We know the history. We know all that other stuff. We know apologetics. We can argue this, that, and the other thing. But do we believe the gospel? These ones who were appointed to eternal life had it because they believed. And my question to you this morning is this. Do you believe it? Because in believing, there's fruit that shows up. Fourthly, in verse 52, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Is there any joy like that of knowing that our sins are forgiven? The guilt is removed. That we are reconciled to God. That we are, sorry, that we have indeed a great hope of eternal life. Not only with joy, but with the source of all true joy, which is God himself. They were filled with the Spirit of God. The evidence of their true belief was the joy and the presence of the Holy Spirit making himself known through them. Beloved, is that your experience? Do you truly believe the gospel? Have you repented of sin and turned to Christ? Is there a desire in you to know more of Christ, more of the gospel, more of God, more of life in the Spirit? Have you responded to the gospel message? Do you know the message? Do you believe it? At the end of the day, that's what matters. You want to be free from guilt? Believe the gospel. You want to be forgiven of sin? Believe the gospel. You want to know what joy really is? You want to have that peace from God? Believe the gospel. That's it. Have I got another message? No. That's all I got. But frankly, it's the only message that matters. Every other message at the end of the day has to come back to the same thing. Do we believe in God or not? because all the theology degrees in the world will not get you into heaven. All the language studies, all that other stuff, it will not put you one millimeter into heaven. I heard a story about uh, Charles Spurgeon. He's one of my heroes, as some of you know. And uh, he he was at the Surrey Music Hall Gardens, or Surrey Gardens Music Hall, whatever it was called, great big glass and steel building in, um, in England. And they were building a new church because there were so many people coming to hear this country bumpkin preacher. 
that they couldn't pack him in. So they built a new church much bigger. And he went in there to the Surrey Gardens Music Hall and on a Friday, I think it was, and he wanted to test the acoustics. They didn't have this in those days. They had just a natural acoustic. So Spurgeon was built with a chest like this to bellow. And he went up to the front of where the pulpit would be set up, and there was no one in the room, that he, so he thought. And he turned around and he bellowed with all of his Spurgeon-like voice and emphasis, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And there was a man in the very far back corner that he couldn't see, an illiterate man who was working in the gardens, and he heard this voice booming out of the, out of the emptiness of the room. You can imagine, right? And he heard, Do you, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He put down his tools, he ran home, and he got on his knees, and he cried out to God to save him. Years later, he was dying, and he called Spurgeon to his bedside. And he said, Mr. Spurgeon, I heard that day. I, he knew it was Spurgeon later. And I believed. And he said, I can't read the Bible, but every day I'd open the Bible, and I would just turn through the pages and rub my hands over the pages. I used an old man. He couldn't read. He said, I love the Word, and I love my Lord Jesus. And his, he looked at his Bible, and the corner of his Bible up here was just worn away from turning the pages he loved the Lord. He believed the message. And with no ability to read, he exercised that faith and belief for the rest of his life. And he knew what it was to go home to glory. Brothers and sisters, do you believe the message? Because without believing that message, there's no hope. There's no salvation. And you will go home tonight and the same guilt that has filled your heart and your mind will fill it again until you turn and believe. Um, I'm going to pray and then we're going to go to the Lord's table and then we'll sing the last song after that. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, I confess, I believe in Him. I believe the gospel. Father, I give thanks that if I can never read another word of theology, but simply the gospel story, it'll be enough. For all of it ends in that. It starts with that. It's filled with that. Father, I cry out to you for this church that's sitting in front of me right now. I plead with you, O oh God, that you'd greatly stir them up. Father, we would see Jesus and we would see him in great detail. We would feast the eyes of our hearts on him. And knowing him, know what it is to have peace. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O oh God, that you would deal with every one of us. Father, there are so many more things that could have been said from that text and preached from that scripture. Father, I just would trust you and trust the power of the Holy Spirit to apply what has been said to every heart, including mine. Father, I ask you that we would see Jesus and see him afresh. 
Father, as we take the wine and the bread in front of us, break the bread and partake of the, the juice, that we would be reminded, powerfully, deeply reminded of the reality of Christ's life and his suffering and his death to give us life. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, to do a work in us now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.